Hey, come on in, grab a seat if you aren't currently seated. There's, uh, well, as you might expect, there's seats kind of, you know, scattered throughout. A couple of them right, right up here in the front. For whatever reason, the back row Baptists always fill in first. Hey, Jeff, if you'll kill that music, be good. There you go. Well, hey, uh, my name's Nathan Wagnon. I'm, I serve on staff here at Watermark. I'm on the equipping team, and one of my responsibilities is to oversee the core classes. So welcome to the first core class of 2016. Yeah, there you go. Clap it up. Hey, uh, uh, as I just said, um, we have uh, six core classes that we offer um, each year. This is the first of those six. This is a little hot, Jeff. Can you turn it down, brother? Thanks. Um, the first one is cover to cover. This is a kind of the 30,000 foot flyover of the entire Bible. Um, so I think you guys are, are really going to enjoy this class. Um, I'll, I'll get to a little bit more information about that in a second, but we also offer, um, the, the remaining five that we offer throughout the year is the life of Christ, uh, the mission and message of Jesus. We offer, uh, keys to effect a Bible study, which is um, pretty popular with people. That's kind of our Bible study methods class. It's how to read, interpret, and apply the Bible um, to your life. We offer know what you believe and why, which is kind of our, our doctrines class to help you gain a, a, a firmer foundation in your biblical worldview. We offer uh, key. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, answering the tough ones, which is our apologetics class. How do you engage people in in uh, in your life? who are asking tough questions about Christianity. How do you, how do you uh, defend the faith, faith, basically? And then our last one is a class on evangelism. How do you um, engage the world with the life-changing message of Jesus? So those are the core classes. We would love it. But the reason we call them core is because we believe that every member, um, regular attender, people who are coming to Watermark, we believe every single person should take all six of those classes and be well-versed in that material. Um, we, we believe that it's core to... Um, living a life of faithfulness to Jesus. So you're, on, you're well on your way, right? You're, you're in the seat on the first night. Um, so welcome. Um, we're, we're really glad you're here. I want to introduce a couple of people. Um, the first guy I want to introduce is going to teach uh, a, a pretty good portion of this class. His name's Blake Holmes. He's a, a senior director of equipping here at Watermark, and he kind of oversees all things uh, equipping. And then the other guy I want to introduce is Jeff Grandy. He's back in the back. He's going to be uh, helping helping uh, Blake out tonight. He is one of our equipping residents uh, in the resident class of 2016. So you guys give it up for Blake Holmes and cover to cover. Thanks, Nathan. Well, hey, gang. Um, I know you have a little fear and trepidation, right? Walking into a class. It's been a long day. Kind of brings back those memories of school, first day of school. And I know the very last thing any of us want to do Take a quiz. So why don't we take a quiz, huh? That would just bring back all those fears and the anxiety that we have about walking into a class on books of the Bible. So this is what I want you to do. Look at your handout and spend a few minutes trying to answer the following questions. Well... Not working. Yeah, it was easy, wasn't it? All right. We're almost there. Hold tight. All right. Give you a few minutes to answer these. 
Ah, no, you don't have to answer all those questions. All right. This is what I want you to do. Some of you are like, oh, thank the Lord. Here's the deal. Some of you could fly through that, and some of you are sitting there going, how fast can I get out of this class? All right. Listen, this is what I want you to know. I'm thrilled you're here. I am thrilled that you're here. I grew up in church, all right, but I did not learn much in church. And um, I kind of attended church, but the Bible never was anything that uh, I understood until a little bit later on in my life when a guy named Todd Wagner started to invest in me late in my teenage years and begin to help me see um, what the Bible is really all about. So I understand that the Bible can be very intimidating to many of us, and it can be overwhelming. And I want you to know, just as part of the equipping ministry here, in any equipping class that you have, whether it's a core class or equipped disciple or summit or women's Bible study, viewpoints which is coming up, or anything that we offer, I just want you to know that we welcome your questions, that we invite your questions, and if you're walking in and you know nothing about your Bible, you're in a great spot. And if you are maybe on the other end of the spectrum and you're sitting there going, hey, I've had several years where I've um, uh, studied the Bible and feel familiar with the Bible, but this is a good refresher for me. Well, I hope that uh, this does that and also gives you language maybe, gives you um, a foothold and the ability to recall some of the stories that you've heard and um, see how the Bible's put together, how it's all one book. Uh, let's look at these questions just real quickly. Um, the first question is, how many books are in the Old Testament? Does anybody know the answer to that? 39. So that's right, 39. So let me just tell you how um, I have to remember things. Just to, let's just be transparent up front. I remember 39 because how many letters are in the word old? That's not a trick question now. Come on. Work with me, people. Work with me. Three. O-L-D. Three. How many letters are in the word testament? Trust me. Nine. 39. There you go. Okay. That's how we're going to learn things around here. Now we're working at a good pace, right? Some of you are starting to feel better. Oh, I can do this. I can do this. That's right. So 39 books are in the Old Testament. Where's the story of Abraham found? Genesis. That's exactly right. Some of you are asking me, hey, who's Abraham? Great question. We're going to cover that tonight, and you're going to know the answer. What three things did God promise Abraham? This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. Anybody know? Ooh, I hear some people have maybe taken this class before. All right. Yes, I hear mixed answers out there. If you say land, descendants, and blessing. Land, the biblical word seed, and I'll explain why later, and in blessing. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, I heard a guy say years ago, um, if you want to understand how well somebody knows their Bible, ask them to explain the significance or the priority of the Abrahamic covenant. And I, you're going to see over the next six weeks how this covenant, this promise made to Abraham ties your whole Bible together. All right? So this isn't just random trivia. It is foundational to all of Scripture. So uh, Nathan mentioned my friend Jeff Grandy. Jeff's a close friend of mine, serves on the equipping team. He's a resident this year. 
Um, hopefully, many of you don't recognize him because in his day job, he's a Dallas police officer. So um, if you do recognize him, let's just keep that between you and him. And uh, just kidding. Uh, but the, the question that we asked all of our residents kind of in their oral exams as we finished the Old Testament was you had 30 minutes. Okay, You have a Bible and 30 minutes. Walk me or show me how the Abrahamic covenant is woven throughout the story of the whole Old Testament. I'll give you 30 minutes. Go. And that's what he did for 30 minutes to show you the priority of the Abrahamic covenant and how that becomes foundational throughout your whole Bible. So you're going to see that over these next six weeks. Uh, Who led the Hebrew people out of Egypt? Some of you have seen the movies. Moses, that's right. What were the names of the two spies who demonstrated faith after spying out the promised land? This is a little harder of a question. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, two strong biblical names right there. All right. Who sheltered the spies sent into Jericho? Rahab. Well done. Rahab, who is also in the genealogy of Jesus. You will see her name in Matthew chapter 1. Where is the story of Samson found? Who is Samson? He was a judge. So where would you think you'd find his story? Judges. Who were the three kings over Israel, the United Kingdom of Israel? Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. Where is the Davidic covenant found, which is a continuation and elaboration on the Abrahamic covenant I just told you about? That's found in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what country overthrew Israel and Judah? Anybody know? There's two different countries, really. The northern kingdom of Israel was overthrown by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah was overthrown by Babylon. All right? Here's my guarantee to you. Okay? If you are thinking I'm speaking a foreign language right now and completely unfamiliar with all those names, countries, and books, at the end of just three weeks, if you will stick with me, you will know the answers to each of these questions and far more if you'll just stick with me. That's my guarantee to you. If you don't know them, we'll give you your money back and buy your dinner. All right? So, but you got to come and stick with this. So I've taught this class many, many, many times to uh, people uh, who have grown up in the church and people who this is truly their first class at Watermark. And I think you're going to be encouraged. I think you're going to be encouraged, right? Um, As I said, uh, my life, I'll tell you a little bit about my story. I grew up going in in and out of church a little bit. It was kind of a religious formality for me. But through a series of tragic events, in my life, the loss of some loved ones, one uh, aunt to a drunk driving, in a drunk driving accident, she was tragically killed. To, uh, both of my grandfathers passed away. My house caught on fire. I was a young kid asking a lot of questions about the meaning of life and is there hope. And, uh, and a valet car parker, a valet car parker at a restaurant my parents would eat at often, was the first to share with me the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. And even in the midst of death and pain and sorrow and worry and fear, you could find life. And, uh, and that changed my life. And then it wasn't long after that, some friends encouraged me to go to uh, 
visit with an older mentor of theirs whose name was Todd Wagner. And Todd, as I said, later in my teenage years, started to invest in me and teach me how to read the Bible. And um, and so uh, that has been something that has changed my life, is um, seeing how the truths of Scripture are relevant and applicable to every area of our life. If, if you're here tonight and you have questions about the Christian faith and this whole thing is overwhelming to you, maybe a friend brought you and you, you would not identify yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe even antagonistic to God, I'm thrilled you're here. Because I hope for the first time you begin to read the book that changed my life, which I think would point you to the one true God. And, uh, and if you're here tonight, and maybe you grew up in church and have heard a bunch of stories about the Bible but don't know where they fit or how they're tied together, uh, that's great too. And so... Um, I think this is going to be an encouraging few weeks. I hope you're encouraged. I'm going to stop at different points along the way and allow you to ask questions. So um, uh, feel free to make note of places where um, maybe I'm not as clear as I want to be. I'm going to be up here along with Jeff and others afterwards. I'm going to be here as long as it takes to answer questions. So uh, please, my email address is bholmes at watermark.org. If that's easier for you, we want to help you, we want to be a guide, and we want to be a resource for you, no matter where you are. I love this quote about the Bible. You find this in the uh, Gideon Bible, which is in hotel rooms, right? It says, uh, the Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred context. We pray for us, okay? Father in heaven, I want to thank you for um, just an opportunity to gather with friends who would, I know after a long day at work, could be in a dozen different places. Home, relaxing, chasing kids, being with friends, um, continuing work. But tonight I've chosen to uh, gather because they want to know more about uh, this book that you've inspired, so that uh, we can know you. And I pray, Father, that no matter where we are in our uh, spiritual journey, whether we have questions and doubts, whether we're new in our faith, growing or mature, that uh, this tonight would be uh, a real encouragement for each of us. Would you help us to lay aside distractions of the day and uh, the pressures of tomorrow 
and make the most of this time together. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, the very first thing I want to do is I want to assume that you know nothing. Okay? And I want to show you, if you have your Bibles, I want to show you how the Bible's put together. So turn in your Bible, if you have it, to the table of contents. Always a good place to start, right? For many of us, the Bible, um, it, it's, it's like a puzzle, if you will. Okay? Uh, you guys know that um, when you build a puzzle, the very first thing you want to do is what? Yeah, you want to find the edge, okay? Um, so what you do is you separate all the pieces and you find the edge. And then what helps you to build the puzzle? The picture on the front. That's exactly right, all right? And then if you're looking at all the, you're looking at all of the puzzle pieces and you start to separate the edge, what's the next thing you can do that will help you build that puzzle? There you go. Separate the pieces by certain colors, okay, and shading. All right, so don't do what I did, okay, over Thanksgiving, staying up till like 2 o'clock in the morning fighting a 2,000-piece puzzle with some of my kids, right? Uh, it just drove me mad, but I had to finish, right? It's one of those things. We've got to finish. We've got to finish. But the thing is that you do something as tedious as that is you begin to find the border, right? You're looking at the, you're looking at the box. You're separating the pieces, And for many of us, reading the Bible, we may have heard stories about Abraham or Moses or David or Elijah or Jesus, Peter, Paul, Samson, okay? And what happens is, is we have all these fractured little pieces. We know all these little stories. Maybe we're familiar with Psalms, okay? But we don't know where Psalms fits in relation to Nahum or where uh, Hosea fits in relation to 1 Kings, And so what we have is, is we have all of these fractured little pieces, all these little stories, and we don't have a sense of the whole. You see, the Bible is all one book. There's 66 books in the Bible, okay? But it has one major theme. It tells one grand story, and that is of God's love for you as expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? And so I, I recognize that for many of us, um, we're coming in here tonight, and we might know these little this, this various stories, but they don't, we don't know where they fit. And when you open up to the table of contents, what I want you to do is I want you to see, begin to get a feel for the border, for the structure, the way the book is put together. Okay? There's 66 books in the Bible And in the Old Testament, there are 39. In the New Testament, there's 27 books, right? So in the Old Testament, old, O-L-D, O-L-D, three letters, Testament, nine letters. What are we supposed to do in the New Testament but go and spread our message, right? Multiply ourselves. So nine times three, 27. There you now you have it. 39 and 27. It's a stretch, but just think about it. All right, here we go. So again, just getting a sense of the, of the border around the puzzle so you can get a, a sense of what is this big story, this big book really all about. The Old Testament um, begins with creation. The New Testament or the New Covenant begins with Jesus, his birth, his life, and his ministry. 
The Old Testament speaks of God's people, known as the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, all referring to the same people, up until about 400 years before the time of Christ. It's written by roughly 28 different authors and covers a time period of over 2,000 years. That's the Old Testament story. The New Testament, as I said, begins with the life and ministry of Jesus, and it's written by nine authors and covers a time period of less than 100 years. Now, if you look at your Old Testament, um, you, the first 17 books are known as the historical books. The next five are poetical and then the next 17 are prophetical. So now we just took the Old Testament with 39 books, and we categorized them into three uh, subjects or categories, okay? The first being 17 historical books. So right under Esther, right under Esther, and right before... Job. You see it? So right there. Right under Esther and right before Job, draw a line. All right? And then right after Song of Solomon and right before Isaiah, draw a line. So the first group, historical books. Next group, poetical. Next group, prophetical. Now, you all know this inherently. If I hand you uh, a poem written by Billy Shakespeare, okay, and a book written by John Grisham, would you read those differently? Yes. Okay. So you can expect that you're going to read Exodus differently than you're going to read Psalms, which you're going to read differently than you're going to read Jeremiah. So... The first thing you want to know whenever you're reading and interpreting the Bible so that you can apply it to your life, you've got to ask yourself, hey, what genre is this book that I'm reading? Okay? The next thing I want you to know is of the 17 historical books that you see listed on the screen here, the first five are known as the law or the Pentateuch. These are the books of Moses. So it just depends on who you're speaking to. If you're speaking to um, somebody in the Jewish faith, it's going to be the law. Okay? If you're going to speak to somebody in the church, they're probably going to call it the Pentateuch. Or the Torah, Hebrews would call it. These are all books written by Moses. Now, looking again at those 17 historical books, I'm going to make it even easier for you. 11 of those 17 books are what I refer to as the primary historical books. So we're subdividing the 17 even more. And each one in gold is a primary historical book. What do I mean by a primary historical book? What I mean is, is that they tell the story and move the chronology along. The other books elaborate on the story that is told in those 11 primary books. 
So I just made the story of the Bible much easier for you to understand because we just went from having to read 39 books to reading 11. Okay? If you want to understand the story of the Bible, all you have to do, or the Old Testament rather, all you have to do is read those 11 primary historical books. The other books will retell, restate, and elaborate on what is covered in those 11 books. I mentioned to you the five poetical books. And then the 17 prophetical books. These are known, uh, these are subdivided into major prophets and minor prophets. Why do you think they're called major prophets? Anybody got a guess? Just simply longer. It's exactly right. right. Not complicated, right? Isaiah is one of those longer books that you'll find in the middle of your Bible. It goes on and on and on. All right, so he's a major prophet. And then you have the minor prophets. Those are the smaller books. Those are what my friend Bobby Crotty uh, refers to as the sticky pages. So he has a whole class in the summer called the sticky pages. And they're sticky because when we turn in our Bibles, you have to break the spine because we never read them. Right? They're all stuck together. And those are the minor prophets. And so um, those, the 17 prophetical books are broken up in those two uh, categories. But then they're also broken up according to the time in which they wrote. So what I want you to see here, and I, I realize that for many of you, my saying this you're not going to understand yet. But in two weeks, this information is going to be valuable to you, and you're going to get it. So bear with me. The, all the books you see in white, they are known as the pre-exilic prophets. So all that means is pre, before, exilic, the exile. Before the exile. The exile was a time in Israel's history when God's people were taken captive by our enemies and removed from the land. So all the prophets who wrote before the exile to warn the people of God that the, their enemies were coming, those are known as the pre-exilic prophets. Then you have what is known as the exilic prophets. Those are the ones that are written in gold, Ezekiel and Daniel. They wrote during the time of the exile to encourage and comfort and remind the people of God's promises. And then the ones you see in red, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, are written after the exile, they're known as the post-exilic prophets. Okay? So what I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to help you see the border. I'm trying to help you see how all these pieces fit to paint a big picture and to tell one story. Okay? All right. Now, it's important that you understand that it is these books are categorized not by chronology, but by kind. Okay, let me say that again. The books are arranged, just as I showed you, not by chronology, but by kind. So how many historical books do you have? 17. How many poetical? Five. How many prophetical? 17. Now, of those 17 
Historical books, how many primary historical books do you have? Eleven. Eleven. Okay? So what I'm showing you in this slide is, if you just read the 11 primary historical books, you can follow this one story along. So, remember, they're categorized or written or or grouped by kind, not by chronology. Many people believe Job may have been the first book in your Bible ever written. Okay? So that's why you see the primary historical books are Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua. Job was a man who lived probably during the time of the patriarchs. And that book may have been the very first book ever written. So his story fits within the historical time period that is told in the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus tells about the Jewish people's escape from Egypt. And then after they escape from Egypt, God reveals to them the law. The book of Leviticus, which you see above Exodus, is simply a retelling, an elaboration of the law that is found in the book of Exodus. Therefore, it's not a primary historical book. It's a summarization and a retelling. The book of Numbers. The book of Numbers talks about when after the Israelites have left Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land and they rebel against God. The book of Deuteronomy reviews the history that is told in Genesis and Exodus. So it's not a primary historical book. It's a secondary historical book. And its retelling is found, it retells the story of the book of Numbers. Everybody see why that chart is significant? So when you look at all the ladies out there who have taken a Bible study on, on the character Ruth, okay, her story is told against the backdrop of Judges. The book of Judges is a very dark period in Israel's history. The book of Ruth stands in stark contrast to that time of rebellion in that God has not given up on his people and he's remembered his promises. And there is hope even in the midst of all the despair and rebellion. So you can't appreciate or understand Ruth unless you understand what's happening in Judges. Then you get to 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel tells the story of a man named David. Who wrote the majority of your Psalms? Do you know? David. So that's why you have the Psalms, a poetical book, listed right below 2 Samuel. So if you want to understand the Psalms and you want to understand the context in which David was writing when he was... um, fleeing Saul, right, when he was uh, grieving his sin, when you want to understand the uh, backdrop of his going to war, you want to read 2 Samuel. Okay, does that make sense? All right, just continuing on. 1 Kings tells the story of Solomon. Solomon wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So again, those where the, that's where the poetical books fit. The prophets fit during before the exile and second kings during the exile 
and after the exile with Ezra. And then the Bible closes with the book of Nehemiah as the primary historical book. All right? So what I'm going to cover for you tonight are the first five books of the Bible. I'm going to help you understand the story. But before we get there, I need everybody to stand up. Jeff, do you remember this? Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right, here we go. Why are we standing up? Well, because I have learned that uh, if my kids can remember this, so can you. Here we go. This is how you can remember the 10 periods of the Old Testament story. It begins with creation. So I want you to create the world, all right? Create the world. This is the world. This is your globe. So creation, all right? Come on now. Stretch out a little bit. Y'all are tired from work. All right. Hey, you could be at home watching the debates. How boring would that be? So come on, let's celebrate creation. All right. Patriarchs. Now, when I think of a patriarch, I think of a wise old man. What does a wise old man do? I feel like he touches his beard a lot and gives advice. Okay. So these are the patriarchs. These are the people who are uh, referred to uh, as the fathers of the Hebrew faith. Okay. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So the Bible begins with the story of creation. It quickly moves into the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then we find God's people are in captivity in Egypt, so they now need to escape. And so now you're marching out of Egypt, all right? This is the Exodus. Some of you are looking at me like, why are we doing this? Because you're going to remember it, okay? You're going to remember it. I have people who come up to me and go, I don't remember a thing about that class, but I can go through those 10 periods. I'm like, perfect. That's great. You got the story, all right? So creation, patriarchs, exodus, all right? And then wanderings, all right? We've left Egypt. You got to do the full term, people. Come on, all right? I see some of y'all cheating. Come on, all right? We'll do this like three more times so we can all get around. They had to wander for 40 years. All you have to do is this. Okay, come on now. All right, so creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering. The people rebel against God when they get to the promised land. And then God goes, guess what? For every day you spot out the promised land and you did not believe and take me at my word, now you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's a long time. Okay, so that's wanderings, and then you have conquest. Joshua leads them into the promised land. This is the book of Joshua, so put up your dukes. All right, you are fighting for the promised land that was told to you, promised to you by God, so conquest. All right, after the conquest, after Joshua dies, you have judges. Oh, sorry, that's kings, judges. (laughs) Really confusing, don't do that. All right, judges, all right. Now, this is a little bit of a misnomer because you're thinking judges, right, with a gavel and a black robe. Really, that's not who they were. They were warriors. You should think Mel Gibson, Braveheart, okay? They were, uh, they were uh, warriors. They were fighters. They were defenders of the land, okay? But nonetheless, judges. You've heard of judges like uh, Gideon and Samson. Those are judges, all right? And then you have kingdom. Now we do this. Put the king, the crown on our head, all right? Now we kingdom. This is uh, when the God allows them to have a king. The first king is Saul. Then you have David. Then you have Solomon. And then Solomon dies, and the kingdom splits into two. Okay? The nation of Israel splits into two. The northern kingdom retains the name Israel. The southern kingdom takes the name Judah after its largest tribe. 
People did not listen to God. They did not obey the law. So God allowed their enemies to have victory over them. And the nation of Assyria conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. Later on, the nation of Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, conquers Judah, the southern kingdom. And when they conquer them, they come and they don't just slaughter them. They take them captive from their land and take them to their homeland. This is known as the exile. So you put your hands behind your back, right? And now you've been taken captive. You have left your home, and now you're in a foreign land. This is where you learn of the story of Daniel and where he fits. All right, this is the exile. But God's faithful to his promises. He tells through the prophets he's going to allow the people to return home, right, and and, uh, go back to the promised land one day, and that's exactly what they do. So we return. Now we're cheering like cheerleaders. Yay, we are back home. We've been in captivity for so long, and now there is silence, 400 years of silence between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It's not that nothing happened during that time. A lot happens in world history, such as the rise of Greece and Alexander the Great. But God chooses not to speak prophetically during this time. So that is why it's called the period of silence. So you have 17 historical books. Of those 17, you have 11 primary historical books. If you read all the primary historical books back to back to back to back, you could then break up that story into 10 chapters. And those 10 chapters are what we just went through. Everybody with me on that? All right. So creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence. All right. Very good. Have a seat. Jeff was worried I was going to call on him. All right. Let me go through this slowly, real quickly, okay? You have creation, again, this is the creation of the world, of man, and all uh, of the early events in Genesis 1, and I'm going to get here in a little while, Uh, don't worry, don't panic when I get to Genesis, but in Genesis 1, people ask me all the time, why is Genesis 1 different than Genesis 2? It's, 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 uh, It's not in contrast to each other. Okay, it complements one another. In Genesis 1, you see that God forms the earth, and then he fills it. The first three days, he forms it. The second three days, he, he fills it. Um, the name for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim, which speaks of his majesty, of his supremacy, okay, of how, how God is transcendent. But then in Genesis 2, it expands on the sixth day of creation. It focuses on God's Um, relationship with Adam and Eve, and it shows that God is imminent. So chapter 1 is showing that God is supreme, uses the name Elohim, focuses on his majesty, he's transcendent, what he speaks into existence, it happens. He's sovereign. Genesis 2 shows you that God is not just transcendent, he's not just sovereign, he's not just all-powerful, but he's relational, and he desires to have a relationship with you and me. And Genesis 2 uses the covenant name Yahweh. He is a personal God. Okay? So we get, we all know the story though. After creation in one and two, we have the fall in chapter three, which I'll get to later on and explain some more. Then you have the patriarchs. This is the wise old men right here. These are the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's the birth of the Hebrew people. When God chooses Abraham, the Hebrew uh, race begins. 
The Exodus is when Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Then you have a new generation of Hebrew people who wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day they spied out the promised land. Conquest, led by Joshua, they go into the promised land. Judges, another 400-year period in which Israel is governed by rulers, known as judges. They do not have a king at this time. God is their king. But they want to be like all the other nations of the earth. They request a king, and God grants that to them. They have an additional 400-year period during which Israel becomes a full-fledged nation ruled by monarchy, Saul, David, and Solomon. Then that nation divides into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. You have a uh, Assyria comes and conquers Israel, Babylon conquers Judah, and that's the time of the exile, a 70-year period during which Israel's leaders live in exile. All right, you're going to notice I repeat myself a lot because when you were asleep five minutes ago, now hopefully you're getting it, right? All right, then you have the return, the return of the exiled Jews to Jerusalem, and then silence, the 400-year period. All right. Any questions up to this point of how the Bible is put together? Anybody? Okay, let me give you, people ask me this all the time, so I just want to give you a rough um, outline as to uh, when these folks lived. Abraham, just think of Abraham roughly 2,000 years uh, before Christ was born. So Abraham was uh, born and lived about 2,000 years before Christ. Moses comes about... Uh, 500 years later, and you have Moses in 1500 B.C., then David about 1,000 years before Christ. They're separated by about 500 years. Israel divides in 931 B.C. It's conquered in 722, and Judah's conquered in 586. And then you see just dates for when they return. That will make a lot more sense later on. All right. So now what I want to do is I want to take a closer look at the first five books of the Bible. I'm going to give you, when we walk through these, I'm going to give you a key word and a short outline for each of these books. That's what I want you to focus on, the key word and the short outline. Um. We are going to take what I refer to as a helicopter tour from Genesis all the way to Revelation over the next uh, several weeks. So if you were to come, what I mean by that is if you were to come to Dallas and you've never been here before, I could show you around Dallas in a limited amount of time in many different ways. We could get in a car and I could drive you around. We could get on a bike, which personally I think would be the most fun thing to do, and ride around. I like to ride bikes. Okay, we could walk, we wouldn't cover much ground, but we could also get in a helicopter, and I could fly you all over the Metroplex, and you could get a feel for where Fort Worth is in relation to Arlington, in relation to Grand Prairie, in relation to downtown Dallas, uptown, Richardson, you get the idea, right? The Bible is all one book, tells one big story. And what I want to do is I want to give you the helicopter tour. There are a lot of different ways in which um, you can study the Bible. 
Some of us have done a lot of walking tours through Philippians, a lot of walking tours real slowly through Psalms, okay? But we've never really taken the helicopter tour to figure out where does Philippians fit. And so if you'll just remember the key word in short outline for each of the primary historical books in the Old Testament that I give you, you will be able to walk someone through this story, much like um, I'm going to do for you, okay? So the key word for the book of Genesis is beginnings, for obvious reasons. It is here that all the major themes of Scripture are found. All the major themes of Scripture are found in the book of Genesis. I love this quote. The major themes of Scripture may be compared to great rivers, ever deepening and broadening as they flow. And it is true to say that all these rivers have their rise in the watershed of Genesis. Or to use an equally appropriate figure, as the massive trunk and widespreading branches of the oak are in the acorn, so by implication and anticipation, all Scripture is in Genesis. Here we have in germ all that is later developed. It has been truly said that the roots of all subsequent revelation are planted deep in Genesis, and whoever would truly comprehend the revelations must begin here. Genesis is foundation, foundational to the entire Bible. The key word again is beginnings, and the short outline is four events and four people. If you remember these four events and these four people, you know the story of Genesis. It's four events are these. Creation. God created man in his image because he desired to have a relationship with them. Fall. What happened was man rebelled against God, doubted his goodness, and chose to disobey what God had commanded. In order for man to have a relationship with God, God had to give man choice. Where there is no choice, there is no such thing as love. There is no such thing as relationship. So he gave man, he didn't create man perfect, he created man innocent. And we, in our great wisdom, chose to rebel against God because we didn't believe he was good. We wanted to make a name for ourselves and be our own God. This is known as the fall. So now we've been separated from him because God is holy and perfect and righteous. So a holy and perfect and righteous God cannot just overlook sin, but he must judge it. Just in the same way, if you committed a crime today and you went before a judge, he would be unrighteous, an unjust judge, if he were just to say, hey, no big deal, don't worry about it. That's not his job. So how much more so does a divine, perfect, holy God have to separate himself, remove himself from a rebellious people? This is known as the fall. But even in the midst of the fall, in Genesis 3.15, you can make note of this, God promises that he's going to provide someone who is going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the first whisper that we hear that God has a rescue plan. And this rescue plan is going to come from a man named Jesus. After the fall, things progressively get worse. Now God's going to judge the earth through a flood. But he preserves one man's life, and this man's name is Noah. Noah, in his story, is a type of Christ. If you look at the story, you see that it's here. God brings judgment by flood over the earth. But yet he gives Noah the choice to trust in him, trust in the ark. 
And it's the ark that rises above the flood of judgment and all that trust in God's means of salvation, they find rest. That's what Noah's name means, rest. They find rest and escape from judgment. The same is true for each of us. If we trust in God's ark, his provision of salvation from the flood of judgment, we find rest. We just find it through a cross. After Noah comes the Tower of Babel. Once again, we see man trying to make a name for himself. He wants to build his way up to God. He wants to be like God. And so God now scatters them by confusing their languages. And this is known as the, why it's known as the Tower of Babel. It sounds as if they are battling. Okay? And so what would naturally happen is they, they gather and group according to their languages. So, Genesis opens with four major events. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. It's at this point that God chooses a man named Abram. All right? Now, this is where the Abrahamic covenant comes, and this is what is so foundational that you've got to understand. God chooses a man named Abram, and he says to Abram, Hey, Abram. I'm going to make a promise with you. I'm going to make a covenant. And what's so important you need to understand is this is an unconditional covenant. It is going to come about not based on Abraham's faith or lack thereof. It can't be lost. This is unconditional. God promises this is going to happen. He says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I promise you three things. I'm going to promise you land. This is known as the promised land for obvious reasons. It's the land God promised Abraham. I promise you, Abraham, his name will become Abraham, changes his name a little bit, but he promises Abraham not just land, but he promises him many descendants. This is significant because Abraham and Sarah are old, and she is barren, and she laughs because it seems ridiculous that she could have kids. She's past the childbearing age. So Abraham and Sarah come up with a way, devise a scheme for how can they help God since he doesn't seem to understand she's old. So Abraham is now going to sleep with Sarah's maidservant named Hagar. Do you know who comes from Hagar? Mm-hmm. Ishmael. And gang, that is where the Middle East crisis begins. You had the beginning of the Jewish Hebrew people and the Arabs, and both claim Abraham as their father. Okay? So, if you read your Bible and you follow along, it will give you great insight into what even is the conflict and what's happening today in the Middle East. But it all starts back here. And this is now going to inform even what happens when we get to Revelation later on in the very last week. People come to me all the time, I want to understand Revelation. Great, you understand the Abrahamic covenant. I don't know what you're talking about. You can't understand Revelation. Because Revelation is the answer to the Abrahamic covenant. And it answers the question, will God fulfill his promises to Abraham? Answer, yes. Abraham and Sarah then, surprise, have a child. That child's name is Isaac. 
Abraham is told to offer up Isaac on the altar. Now, why would God encourage him to do that? Because God was testing Abraham, and he was saying to him, are you going to believe, trust, follow, and relate to me because you believe I am the God of promise? Or are you in love with and committed to the promise of God? Do you see the difference? And Abraham, by faith, offers up Isaac. This is also a picture of what God is going to do for us through the promise of his son. Except where Abraham stopped short, God followed through. Instead of offering up Isaac, God provided a ram, a substitute that was to be sacrificed. Okay, that ram died in his place. And Christ died in our place. Every story is going to whisper, okay, to use uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible's subtitles, theme, it whispers Christ's name. It's all pointing to Jesus. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons. Their son's name are Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. They are twins. And they have a rivalry between one another. Jacob is a little heel grabber, a conniver from the beginning, a swindler. It's a long story, but he finds himself on the run because he has stolen his brother's birthright and blessing. Okay? And um, God appears to him in a dream and tells him that he's going to be the son of promise. You see Jacob's ladder, and Jacob being the little conniver, the little swindler, okay, God is going to show him that he's going to, can no longer rely upon his own strength and own independence, and he wrestles with Jacob, touches his hip, and he walks with a lump. His name then is changed to what? Anybody know? Israel. That's where the name Israel comes from. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which means one who strives with or wrestles with God. Jacob has 12 sons. Those become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, follow me. We're going fast. I realize that. But but listen and pay attention. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Of those 12 sons... The line of promise. You remember Abraham was promised descendants? There's going to become one who's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That line, the line of promise, the line of which Jesus will ultimately come, comes through the son known as Judah. It is at the end of Genesis where God says to Jacob, the scepter shall not depart from the throne of Judah. They, Judah, or from the house of Judah. Judah will always have the right to rule. So right here in the book of Genesis, we see from uh, Adam and Eve, there's going to become one who stomps the head of the serpent. We see that through Noah's lineage, his family, through 
Abraham comes Abraham. From Abraham, one is going to come, a descendant, who's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That line then goes through Isaac. That promise then goes from Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob to Judah. That's why Jesus is known as the what of the tribe of Judah. Do you know? The lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. C.S. Lewis didn't just make that up. Okay? It's a biblical illusion for those of you who've seen Narnia that Jesus is going to return as a lion. He came as a lamb, but he will return as a lion. Everybody with me? Why then does the, did I say Jacob, then Joseph? Why didn't I say Jacob, then Judah? Answer, because Genesis is going to follow the story of Joseph because Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And he was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, then brought up, sold into slavery, finds himself in Egypt, okay, falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison, has a series of dreams, interprets the dreams, now has a position of prominence, and guess what? There's a famine in the land in Canaan where his brothers who betrayed him live, and where do they go to find food? Bowing before their very own brother in Egypt, who they thought was dead. There's a reconciliation, and now you have God's people moving from Canaan to Egypt. That's a lot of information. There's <clears throat> Genesis really has two purposes. It has a universal focus, and it has a national focus. The first 11 chapters reveal the origin and purpose of the universe, life, humanity. But then in chapter 12, that's when it turns to God's promise to Abraham, and we follow the beginning of the Hebrew or Jewish people. Okay? And it has a national focus, 12 through 50. It's a theme of promise. Talked about where do you see Christ in the book of Genesis? Where do you see this whispering of Christ's name? Well, in multiple places that I mentioned to you, but certainly in the offering of Isaac. The key chapter is chapter 12, because that's where the Abrahamic covenant is found. It's repeated in Genesis 15 and primarily in verse 6. If you're going to know a verse in all of Genesis, you'd want to know Genesis 15, 6. And you're going to want to cross-reference that with Romans 4 because it's there that Paul is going to develop the theme that we are saved by grace through faith. And that story is illustrated in the life and faith of Abraham. Your Bible's all one book. I don't expect you to know what's found in Romans 4 and all that. I just want you to make a note. Write down Romans 4 right beside there. Because he's going to tell the story of Abraham and illustrate we're saved by grace through faith. And he's going to use Abraham as his illustration. Notice this. This is worth pointing out. In Galatians 3, verses 6 through 8, Paul, this is the New Testament in Galatians, Paul's going to say, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul, in Galatians, after the time of Jesus, is referring back to the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis chapter 12 and saying, hey, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant in providing Jesus and preached, did you see that? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. You see, Jesus didn't just come on the scene out of happenstance like, whoa, where did he come from? God was fulfilling his purposes. History is not a random order of events. History is providentially designed. And God is shaping it. I was in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, and came across this incredible picture, basically hidden in the museum. And uh, this is a Rembrandt painting of Abraham offering his son, Isaac. And it was breathtaking. It was basically from the floor to the ceiling. But could you imagine? And what you see is right there, you see his hand over his eyes. And you see the angel coming out and then the ram in the thicket. And he comes and says to him, hey, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do it. And Hebrews 11, you can write it down, tells us why was Abraham willing to do that? Because he believed that God was going to raise his son from the dead. The Bible's all one book, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. You can write it down. So this is interesting. Where Abraham offered his son Isaac, this is on a mount called Moriah. Later on, this is where Solomon's temple will be built. Later on, this is where the second temple, which is Zerubbabel, built. Later on, it's going to be Herod the Great's temple during Jesus' day. And do you know what's on Mount Moriah today? The Dome of the Rock. That's exactly right. When you you walk into Jerusalem, that is the most outstanding feature in all of Jerusalem. So, uh, interesting point of fact. A lot I could say about that, but it's 8 o'clock and I got 30 minutes. So here we go. Jeff, this is where I want to invite you in, man. Sorry for being so long-winded. But So Jeff has studied uh, extensively with me, right, what I did with you all in 30 minutes, he's done in over months. Uh, looking at the story of the Old Testament, now we're in uh, the New Testament and theology. But um, I just asked him, I said, hey, Jeff, I'd love for you to share, as you've looked at Genesis and several of these books, what are some of the things that um, encouraged you? What were some maybe the, the applications, just life lessons that you learned uh, looking at Genesis? So if you wouldn't mind sharing those real quick. So there, you go. Um, there we go. So you look at the book of Genesis, and there are several, several lessons and several instances of, of encouragement. Um, but if I could, you know, pinpoint one thing off the top of my head as we're, we're looking at the aerial view, as, as Blake said, um, is God's faithfulness, God's tremendous faithfulness uh, to his creation, 
to us, to his promise of redemption. Uh, it's always amazing to me that as soon as Adam and Eve sin, as soon as the fall occurs, um, God had every right to, to stomp them out, uh, had every right to start over. Uh, but instead, he immediately promises uh, redemption. He immediately promises that, that serpent crusher in Genesis chapter 3, like he says. And then he, throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, he, he continues to just call his shot over and over again. Uh, like Blake was saying, um, Isaac being a type of Christ, who is a, a promised son, uh, sacrificed by his father just to be raised up again. Uh, Joseph, who was thrown into the pit by his, his own kin, uh, just to raise to, the, uh, to a seat of prominence at the right hand of the king and use his, his uh, seat of prominence to save the very same kin that, that uh, meant to kill him. Um, so as you look over the book of Genesis, again, several stories of, of uh, people's faith, uh, stories of encouragement and lessons, but kind of the aerial view is, is God's faithfulness to me. Yeah, that's good. And I think the thing that I would want to encourage you with and just remind you of what Paul summarizes well uh, in his pastoral epistles is that uh, even though man is faithless, God remains faithful. And I need to be reminded of that. See, I just don't want you all to hear stories and get the structure and all that. thing. I want you to be reminded that the God we serve is a God of promise and faithfulness. Right? People are going to let you down. They're going to betray you. They're going to hurt you. Okay? And God remains faithful. And as I said with you, to you that Genesis, that's where the major themes of Scripture all come, come from. This is the foundation. And we learn in Genesis that God remains faithful to his promises. And even when man is faithless, even when we rebel against him, he doesn't give up on us. Amen? It's a good reminder. All right. The book of Exodus. I want you to remember the word escape. Escape. <clears throat> God's people, because of the famine, have gone down to Egypt looking for food, and they appeared before Joseph, and Joseph had risen to a position of prominence in Egypt because of a series of dreams and interpretations he had. He received favor from Pharaoh. So Joseph says, hey, come live down here, and you see Jacob and his family pick up and go to Egypt. But Exodus chapter 1 says there a Pharaoh arose who no longer remembered Joseph. So now time has gone on, and God's people have multiplied just like he promised, but they are in Egypt. Where are they supposed to be? The promised land, Canaan, Israel, all the same geography. Just depends on, let me just say that again. Palestine, Canaan, Israel, the promised land, that's describing the same geography, the same land, the same dirt. It just, as history goes on, it's referred to by different names. So you have Israel in Egypt, God's people, the Hebrew nation, the people who are the descendants of Abraham, multiply, Moses, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Pharaoh feels threatened by the number of Hebrews in his land, so he decides to enslave them. He's going to profit off of them so that they don't rebel and usurp his authority. Okay? God hears their cry, and he raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, 
God has told me that you are to let his people go. Okay? You may have remember the story of Moses, how God appears before him through a burning bush. At least it appeared to burn, but it wasn't burning. It was holy ground. And this is at this point that he's revealing himself to Moses, and he's saying, hey, Moses, I'm going to use you, and you're going to be my deliverer. And that's where Moses says, I can't, 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 can't do it. Right? Because as I, I stutter, who am I? And Aaron becomes his mouthpiece. Right? And they go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. It is at this point, listen carefully, Pharaoh says, who is your God? And this is when Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, is going to answer the question, I will show you who the one true God is. See, they lived in a polytheistic world where they believed there was a God of the moon, stars, sea, Nile, and everything. And God, through a series of judgments, through the plagues, demonstrates his sovereignty over the false idols of Egypt. What he was doing is he was showing the Hebrew people that he is the one true God and raining judgment down on Pharaoh and the Egyptians who believed in the false idols and questioned God's supremacy. You follow me? The last plague is known as the Passover because it's at this point where the death angel passes over the land and everybody who by faith slaughters a lamb and puts the blood on the door, notice the picture, the blood on the door, everybody who places their faith in the lamb and the provision of God, when the death angel passes over, they are spared judgment and they live. Everyone who doesn't place their faith in the blood of the lamb, the firstborn son is killed in that household. That is why Paul, later on in the New Testament, refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. Do you know what day in which celebration, which uh, 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 Israeli feast in which Jesus died? He died during the Passover. That is the picture. The Passover is to the Old Testament what the crucifixion and resurrection is to the New Testament. God is redeeming his people from slavery and bondage, just like he has redeemed us from the slavery of sin and bondage. And he has given us new life, but it comes through the blood of the lamb. It comes at a cost. We have been redeemed. But God didn't just redeem us, didn't just redeem Israel for grins, he had a purpose, and that his purpose was for them to become a kingdom of priests. So Genesis 19, 5 and 6, he says to them, you will become a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Now, you probably think priests, what does that mean? A guy with a funny collar, that's not what he intended. He means you're going to be my representative on the earth. I'm going to use you, nation of Israel, to reach all the other nations of the earth. I have redeemed you. I have set you apart. I have freed you for the purpose of using you to teach of my way and my plan of salvation to all the nations of the earth. Everybody with me? How can they be set apart? How can they be different? This is when... God is going to reveal his law. Okay, so let me just back up. 
God's people are in bondage. God goes to Moses and says, hey, I hear their cry. I'm going to use you. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, let them go. He says no. Ten separate times, there's ten different plagues. The last plague is the Passover, the death of the firstborn. After that, Pharaoh goes, I'm done. Y'all get out of here. Moses picks up all the people. They plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians are literally giving them their goods. Just leave. We're terrified of you and your God. They leave. Pharaoh changes his mind and says, my slave labor, my workforce, my economy just left. I need them. He chases them. Now God's people find themselves up against the Red Sea and nowhere to go. Pharaoh comes down with all of his army. Moses looks back and says, I'm in trouble. God says, all the people complain. God says, take that staff, hit the Red Sea, and watch it open. And so here is where you see God's people cross the Red Sea, and then he brings the water on the Egyptians and their army, and they drown. Okay? So, again, it is a picture. You have redemption, okay, over the Passover, and you have the being freed out of slavery, and then you have the washing. You have the baptism into new life on the way to the promised land. It's a picture. Okay? So now they're, in the, now they're headed to the promised land, and God reveals to Moses on Mount Sinai the law because that's how the people are going to be set apart. And what I want you to understand is, is that the law is not bad, okay? The law served two purposes. One, it was revelatory. It reveals the character and goodness of God. It shows you who he is and what he's like. The reason why we don't uh, lie, okay, the reason why you don't steal is because God is a God of truth. The reason why you don't murder is because God is a God of life. These aren't arbitrary laws. The laws reflect who he is. Not only do they reveal who he is, but they are regulatory and they show us how we're to live our lives to reflect his character, his goodness, and so that we can relate to him and love others. The law's broken up into three parts. These are not three parts that you would find in the Bible. Okay, some people kind of go, oh, well, it's too hard to really categorize them like this. Just generally speaking, okay, I know there's nothing inspired about this, but you have essentially, if you were to read the law, you'd have the moral law, which are the Ten Commandments, those laws which were repeated in the New Testament primarily. You have the civil law, like how they were to get along with one another and do business. And then you have the ceremonial aspect of the law. How were they to relate to a perfect, holy, and righteous God? Now, the Bible goes out of its way to talk about, Paul specifically, how the law is holy. The law is good. You can see these passages there and in your notes. The law is holy and good, And it serves, as Paul says in Galatians 3, as a tutor. What does a tutor do? Instructs, points, 
The law reveals to us our need for what? A savior. Because God, the law reflects that we serve a perfect, holy God. Well, what are we? We're sinners. The law shows us our need for Savior and forgiveness. It points us to Jesus. And, in that, and Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law is not bad. The law is good. But it is limited, Romans chapter 7, in that it cannot bring about the change in our hearts that is necessary for new life and freedom. God now reveals the law to the people, and he's going to dwell amongst them in a tabernacle. Okay? This is a moving tent. It is a moving sanctuary. And when the Israelites move, the tabernacle leads them. With a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, God guides and leads them. When the pillar of cloud or, or the pillar of fire stops, they stop, and the tabernacle is right in the middle, and all the tribes camp around it. Literally, God dwells with them. He is in their presence. That is why Jesus tabernacled Emmanuel with us. Okay? Um, when I went to Israel, uh, they had an exact replica of the tabernacle, which was fascinating. I'll go through this quickly. But what you see when you walk in to the tent is you see right there is the altar where sacrifice is made. Then you see the wash basin. Okay, after sacrifice comes washing. Tell me if this, any of this sounds familiar to you. After the wash basin, you walk into the tent, and there is the table of showbread. Come on. Then you have the lampstand, the altar of incense, and then you walk into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, and this is where God's covenant is, where uh, his presence was said to dwell amongst the people. Now look at this. When you open up the covenant, the ark, you would see a, a, uh, the Ten Commandments. You would see Aaron's rod that blossoms, and you would see manna, all symbolic of God's provision in their life. What is the movie uh, Harrison Ford starred in that you loved growing up? Raiders of the... Lost Ark, this is the Ark of which the movie was about. Did you know that? All right. So let me show you how this little thing that we just looked at, this tabernacle, how even the tabernacle preaches. Okay? You have an altar which represents sacrifice in its typological meaning as the atonement of Christ. Remember what I said? After sacrifice comes what? The basin of washing. That's symbolic of our cleansing through Christ and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Then you had the table of showbread, which was symbolic of spiritual sustenance. Who did Jesus say he is? I am the what of life? Bread of life. Hello. He didn't just look at bread and think, you know what, let me think of something to say. He knew his Old Testament. 
right? He's the lampstand. I am the blank of the world, light of the world. The altar of incense, you see incense represents supplication, prayer. You see with inside the ark, a copy of the Ten Commandments. The ark represents access to God. And then you see the mercy seat, which is Christ, the presence of God. All right? So the book of Exodus, I'm on, I'm running now. All right? Yeah, the book of Exodus, the key word is escape. And it's broken up into redemption. God's people are redeemed from slavery. And then you have revelation, where God gives his law to his people so they can be set apart. Everybody with me? All right, Jeff, thoughts on Exodus, man, that key takeaways that encouraged you? If I'm being honest, uh, there have been several times when I've really wished God would be much clearer in revealing his will for my specific life. Um, there have been several times when I've wished, you know, if God would just tell me uh, where to move, if God would just tell me what kind of employment to pursue or what, what to do in this situation or that situation and just make it clear. And, and if I'm being really honest, in the back of my mind, a lot of times I'm thinking, man, then it would be so much easier to, to obey. Then it would just be so much easier to, to trust God if, if he would just make it clear. Why does he have to make it so hard? And, and studying Exodus... I see that really there was a time when, when God did that for his people. You, Blake talked about the, the, how God led his people by the pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. God was telling them for years exactly when to move, where to go, and exactly when to rest and for how long. God was giving them exactly what they were supposed to eat and how much to eat every morning in their manna. Um, at Mount Sinai, he was telling them exactly how to, how to behave in so many different circumstances, and yet... The Israelites struggled tremendously in their faith. They struggled tremendously in obeying God. Uh, and we see them relapse into sin time and time again. And uh, in light of the, the overarching story of the Bible, uh, studying Exodus, it's, it's clear to see that the answer is not, um, no matter how much sometimes I, I want it to be, the answer is not having God reveal his, his will for my specific life and, and talking to me more clear. The answer is just more trust. The answer is that, I need to increase in faith. It's so. good. It's good. Okay, the book of Leviticus. It's not a primary historical book, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because all it does is it restates, summarizes, and retells the latter part of Exodus, which I just told you about, about where God reveals himself through the law. What you want to know about Leviticus, though, the key word is holiness. God intends for his people to be holy, which just simply means to be set apart and different. And he's going to show them how to live in right relationship with them. How do you, this is what Leviticus is about. How do you live with a perfect, holy, righteous God living in the middle of your camp? Okay, that's Leviticus. The key word, holiness, over 92 times. All right. We're going to look at Numbers and Deuteronomy. Numbers is going to take me about five minutes, and Deuteronomy is going to take me about one. So here we go. The key word for the book of Numbers is wandering. You remember, they are now in the desert. They've gone through the what sea? Red Sea. Moses has gone to Mount Sinai. God's revealed his law to them. Now they are on their way to the promised land. 
And it's at this time when they get to the promised land, okay, this Exodus generation sends in 12 spies. One spy for every tribe. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. Each of those 12 sons, their descendants, those become the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, one spy from each tribe goes into the promised land. When they enter into the promised land, they see that the occupants of that land are big, strong, and the cities are well fortified. This terrifies them. Because they've basically been nomads. Okay? And now they are thinking, and God wants us to overthrow the occupants of that land? There's no way. So 10 of the 12 spies say, hey, we're dead. And they rebel. And they incite fear and worry and doubt in the people. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, hey, Exodus generation, do you not remember what God has done for us? How he freed us from captivity in Egypt? Do you not remember how he's provided manna, how he's provided quail, how he's provided water from the rock? Do you not remember how he's led us by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night? Where is your faith? Well, it is what have you done for me lately? That is all good. And in the past, the giants are in the land. There's no way. So they rebel against God. And God says, hey, for every day you spied out the promised land, now you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 days, now 40 years. And what he is doing is he is judging the Exodus generation, those who saw the miraculous, but now deny God's power. And he says, because you've doubted me, this Exodus generation will no longer have the opportunity to go into the promised land. Yes. So, now, this Exodus generation who was worried about their kids, saying, oh my gosh, we're going to die out here. What's going to happen to our kids? God says, I've got your kids, and your kids are going to be the ones who enter into the promised land under Joshua and Caleb's leadership, those two spies. So everyone 21 years old and older, they will wander until that generation dies off. Everyone who's younger, they will now experience the blessing and the promise under the leadership of the two spies who believed God. Everybody with me? So that's why I call it the old generation, the Exodus generation, the tragic transition. This is what happens at the promised land when they rebel, and then the new generation. What's fascinating in the book of Numbers where you see Christ is in the lifting up of the bronze serpent. It is here where the people complain and argue and rebel against God. And fiery serpents in judgment come and bite the people. Okay? The people are venomous in their anger toward God, and now they are bit with venom. And each one is going to die unless they place their hope and their faith in the instrument 
of salvation, which is a bronze serpent. The serpent is lifted up, and everyone who looks to the serpent for healing and rest, they live. And everyone who rebels, they die. When you think of John 3.16, what does it say? Mm -hmm. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When you see the word for there, what is it there for? If I say to you, John 3.16, for God, it is explaining something, right? So what does John 3.15 say? Anybody got a Bible? No, no, John 3.15. Thank you, 14, then 15. My bad. Yes, will you say it louder? I'm sorry. Thank you. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, this story in the Old Testament is not some just obscure story that no one ever remembers and everyone told. It is the very context of which Jesus says the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only Son. What is he saying? Hey, just as Moses lifted up the serpent and they found life and healing, so too will God lift up his son so that you can find life and healing. When you look at the next ambulance that races by you, you will see a staff and you will see a snake. The book of Numbers. Healing. If you have uh, what you don't need to know, and I'll close here in the last minute, is you can actually go to uh, Mount Nebo. Unfortunately, Moses rebels against God, begins to take credit for himself, um, and he strikes the rock when God tells him to speak to it. And because of that, Moses himself is not allowed to enter into the promised land. But God says, hey, I'm going to allow you to see the promised land. So you can go to Mount Nebo, where I was in Jordan, and look into the promised land. There's a little legend of what you would see, how far it is. That is, I'm on Mount Nebo. This is crazy. I stood where Moses stood. One of the few places in all of the Middle East where you can go and go, hey, this is where it happened. If you have an old generation that has died off and you've raised up a new generation, what do you think you need to teach the new generation? Okay, I heard a couple of different things. What, somebody said it again. Don't do it again. Thank you. Who said that? Thank you. Don't do it again. So you have to teach people their history. You have to teach people what else? 
the law, and then you want to challenge them to obey. Guess what Deuteronomy is? Deuteronomy is three sermons by Moses. He gives them their history. This is where you've been. He teaches them the law. And then in the third sermon, he says, hey, gang, don't repeat our mistakes. The key word for Deuteronomy is review. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your patience to us, your faithfulness, as Jeff reminded us, reminded us tonight. And thank you, Father, that every story truly, indeed, whispers the name of Jesus. That history is not some random occurrences of events, but you have providentially designed the course of history to reveal your son that we could find life. I thank you, Father, for every heart that's been changed in this room and for the great privilege that you give us to be ambassadors for your sake. Would you find us faithful tonight? Would you help us to learn from the lessons of Israel? And, um, and Lord, would you help us to rest in your grace, to look to the ark, to trust in the Passover lamb and the bronze serpent that's lifted up. We are grateful for Jesus who removes our sin, paid our penalty, took our place, and fulfilled the law. In Christ's name, amen.